holding my chest, my legs and hands, silence, feeling the pressure. What? She was a fraud. It's a million bloody degrees out there. Oh, wind. I'm sorry if I said anything awful. Blessed lambs of God. Why hadn't he got up to chop the capsicums? I was never a good reader. Ah, Immaculately bland. Anyway, it looks like... What do we do with this now? You're not even supposed to use the word fat. Boys like girls. When we were very young... I was back home in Norwich. Square Sound. You're listening to the audiobook podcast for the makers and listeners of audiobooks. Hi, welcome back to the audiobook podcast with me, Justine Sloan-Lees, and I'm thrilled to have as my guest today, Tamala Shelton. Hi, Tamala. Hello. Now, Tamala is a proud Bundjalung and Lama Lama actor, writer and activist. She made her professional debut in the ABC comedy Upper Middle Bogan, which was so much fun, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Which she followed with a main cast role in Nowhere Boys, the teen drama for the ABC, and later reprised for the film Nowhere Boys, The Book of Shadows. Two of Tamala's biggest roles have been Alinta in the critically acclaimed series Clever Man for the ABC and Petra in the US network series Reef Break. Off-screen, Tamala's an avid reader and writer. This has obviously lent itself well to her ever-advancing work in audiobook narration and voiceover. Tamala's been the narrator of a number of well-known audiobooks, especially First Nations audiobooks, and is a host of Storybox Library. So we first met you, Tamala, auditioning for your first narration in February 2017, when you were how old? 19, I would have been. Yes. I was young. You were so young. (laughs) And shortly after that, you got your first audiobook, which was a multi-voice title, Beautiful Messy Love. Your next book in 2018 was Terra Nullius by Mm. Claire G. Coleman. Claire's a Willaman Noongar woman who wrote this really powerful piece of speculative fiction that was Mm. a dystopian and allegorical novel set in the future but drawing very much on Mm. our colonial history, describing a society split into natives and settlers. Mm. So you are an avid reader and writer. Do you think this plays a crucial role in narrating? Yeah, because I love what I do and I love storytelling and it's just kind of another modality or way to do that. So I think that helps. It would be very strange if I didn't like reading and did this as a job. (laughs) I think it would read in the way that I narrate. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect so. So what do you enjoy most about narrating? You clearly love it, but what in particular? Oh, that's such a big question. I love it. I love it so much. I love the meditative state that I fall into when I do it. I love reading the novels that I do. Yeah, it's actually like one of my favourite parts of my career as an actor. I love doing audiobooks. I hope I get to do them for the rest of my life, please. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to add to that too, because, you know, in my culture, we were oral storytellers, you know. This is how we kept our culture alive and continue to do so. And I think we forget that. I remember when I started studying acting and my first acting teacher was like, you know, this is the first form of communication, acting before language even came about. So body language and expression Mm. and play, this is storytelling. This is essential to what it is to be human. And orally, I think that's why it's such an amazing space to work in the First Nations written space because this is how we retain and share our culture. So we need more of that, please. Lots more of that. Yeah, that's great. So what's been a recent highlight then? Well, Bemelwoy was huge, actually. I mean, that was like, was it a year-long process? It was, yeah. That, yeah. Was a, that felt really important. Okay, we'll come to that later because that's a yes. whole big topic. So, yeah, what's been your funniest experience in the booth, do you think? I think discovering all the Tamalarisms, like all the things that I mispronounce and don't realise that I've been mispronouncing my whole life, like ancient. I say ancient. 
<laughs> and there's a couple that I can't remember today. But yeah. I think there's quite a few people who have those. Linoleum is a really common oh, one. Fun everyone. Oh, Linoleum. Everyone every hates time. that. Yeah, every time. <laughs> it's such a mouthful. Yeah. Because we never say it in real life. No, we read right. it. Yeah. There's so many words that we read, but we don't say. Isn't that's that the, the thing. thing? You know, us bookworms, there's words we've read all our life. Mm-hmm. We know exactly what they mm-hmm. mean. I think I'm so smart. And then I can't say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I can promise you you're not alone with linoleum. Oh, my God. Linoleum. <laughs> so talk about your preparation process. Yeah, well, I start with reading the book. That's that always helps. helpful. We love that. <laughs> Imagine not reading it. That would be terrifying. No, so you read the book and then I make notes on the characters and their accents and the different tones and I check on words that I don't know how to pronounce or if there's language involved, and I'm sure we'll get to talking about that. <laughs> I work out how to say the words if I don't know the language. And then always the day of the recording, I do my voice preparation work. I cannot record without it. And it's all about the breath. Right. Yeah. So if you sit in your car and anyone who turned to look at your traffic lights would be wondering what on earth you're yes, doing they with can your hear- face. Yes, 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 exactly. (laughs) So with the characters, how do you find that detail? Do you take it from what's in the script, like the way people are described, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I don't make huge decisions because that feels, I don't know, I need to honour the book and what the author has provided. So I don't make like wild decisions on the characters at all. I struggle when there's lots of men because I can only go so deep. I can only do so much vocal fry. (laughs) Like Too Much Lip, I remember, by Melissa Lukashenko. That had a lot of men. So I was like, lots of vocal fry throughout the book. But yeah, it's one of the real challenges. Yeah, know, particularly when they're in conversation with each other. Yeah. And what helps is working with someone like you when you record it and then we can bounce back to it and like, oh, what is this character again? Because sometimes you get lost. If they're all talking in a room and there's like eight characters, you need to be able to reference back because you can only hold so much in your brain. Especially if there's action and you've got to like scream and whisper and, you know, yeah. And then sometimes someone will disappear for 10 chapters and then they're back again. It's like, oh, my Lord, what did we do? (laughs) (laughs) Go back and find that chapter and just check it out again. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk maybe now about this major book you did, which was Pemoy, The Rainbow Warrior. Mm-hmm. It was a book written quite some time ago by Eric Wilmot, but it was republished and an audio book was sought. And great, except extensive use of languages from the Darug, the Darawul and the Arabakal language groups. Mm. And with the initial record, the extent of the language wasn't really understood. Mm. And so it meant a very protracted process of stuff had to be referred back. Found a guy called Andrew Dillon, a Kamilaroi Durag and Narrabul man who found a language consultant, Karina Wyala Norman, who's Mm -hmm. a Darug Darawal woman. And they worked in close collaboration with the community of the Bajigal people Mm -hmm. to get consensus about Mm. how these words should be pronounced. Because it's a really important topic. Do you want to explain who he was? Eric Wilmot. Pemawoy. Oh, who Pemawoy was. He led one of the most major resistances against the white people in First Contact Australia. And he's a figure who some people know about, but who has also been largely, I don't want to say forgotten, but this story definitely needed to be out in the world again, because I've talked to a lot of people since and they're like, whoa, who's Pemawoy? Did Eric write it in the 80s? Was this the first release? Yeah, I think it was first released some decades ago. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And when he wrote the book, he knew people who spoke the languages, right? But then by the time we got around to it, he'd passed quite recently. 
And a lot of the speakers had passed away also. So we were working with the Yorta language, E-O-R-A, a dead language. And we had words of Yora. And so that was what a lot of the consultancy was around, is working out what do we think the words would sound like. And that's a big process. Mm. Yeah. And so when you listen to it, which is so extraordinary that it's in audio form, you're listening to a language that hasn't been heard in many, many years. So it's, it was actually like a huge reclamation process, this book. It became so much bigger and so much more important than we could have ever known. And it was, yeah, like this year-long process. And we did go back and re-record because I think from memory we recorded the whole thing in one go and then we went back and did all the language again because mm-hmm. we just needed that process. And there was a lot of back and forth thing, which is really essential. And also I was really conscious of getting permission from these elders to speak these languages because that's such a huge integral part of the process that mm-hmm. I think gets missed sometimes. And, yeah, they granted me permission. And you're right. I mean, the expansion yeah. of available content content being recorded of First Nations material, it's a great format to hear those languages, but it throws up all these complexities. The one that you and I did a few years ago, Benevolence by Julie Danson, and that was full of Darug as well. And Julie provided a great reference for us in that instance. So Often the authors do, yeah. But on this one, we didn't have an author to Mm. reference. And one of the things you discovered was that his name is spelt with a P at Mm -hmm. the beginning. Mm -hmm. But in fact, one of the comments that came back is to Western ears, you wouldn't actually hear that as a P. It's more a B, a softer It's like a mix between the two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. yeah, we decided pretty last minute to just keep it as Pemelwoy, just because that's the recognisable name mm. and changing it. But I think throughout the book, I kind of played with that BP sound. And there's also other rules because there's Pamanuan and non-Pamanuan languages in Australia. Oh, have you heard of this before? No, I have not. Yes. So in Australia, oh, don't quote me, but I think there's like over 400 languages or mm. something. And so there's Pamanuan languages and non-Pamanuan. And non-Pamanuan, I think, makes up quite a small percentage of First Nations language groups. And Pamanuan is kind of the rest. And so when I worked with Karina, she was talking to me about some of the general rules of Pamanuan languages, so things like the BP sound, that's a constant. GKs are often a similar sound. There's often like consonant followed by a vowel followed by a consonant. That's like my name, Tamala. That's a really good example of the rules of how they structure their words and sentences. Um, And so having those in my brain really helped moving forward with this book because there was so much language in this book. This is probably one of the heaviest language books I've worked on. Mm. So having those general rules really helped. It was really different to other books. It was different to all of them, in fact. All the other books that I've received that are First Nations written, usually the author or someone that they know will provide little sound bites and they'll send them through and that's where I do my parroting work. But this was the first book where we didn't have that for reasons that we just explained. And so I got to work with a language consultant for the first time in my life, separate to audiobook work. This was, yeah, a pretty extraordinary experience. And it was also really different to just sitting down and learning a language. Um, we met over Zoom. I can't remember where she's based, but she's not based in Nam. And we talked a lot and we talked about culture. It was actually a really beautiful, supportive experience. Um, I remember she said to me, she's like, do you know your language? And I said, no. And she went, you must. It will change everything. And I was so affected by that Zoom call, actually. So because of that, it was just a really different process because instead of just kind of being handed a word and then just parroting it back, which feels like a slightly less embodied way of learning, mm-hmm. with Pemelwoy, it was an embodied way of learning. Not only was it a really important story, it was also a true historical account. So there was kind of all this weight to it. And then I was doing this embodied language work. So instead of, yeah, like I said, just learning the word, I was actually having to really sit with it, move it around in my mouth, really understand its meaning and the extra weight of it being lost as well. And that I was, yeah, I was kind of the first person to speak it or some of the words since its demise. So because of that, the cultural weight, good weight, 
of this book was different to everything else. And yeah, I'm very honoured that I got that experience. I really mean that. Yeah. And we're so grateful for your commitment to the book. Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned it was a very long term process mm-hmm. and it involved you taking on this responsibility yeah. and you weren't going to let go lightly. You just were there 100% Absolutely. and made such a difference. And thank you to you all as well. Like we stuck with it and we made it work and didn't just do a half-assed job. Not that we ever do half-assed jobs, but you know, it required so much more than that. Yeah. And it was like a year-long process and it's out there. So please listen to it, everybody that's listening. It's a really, really extraordinary book. I really believe it should be compulsory reading in this country and you get to hear the language. So listening to it is actually a really, really special experience. Please, please, please do that. Yeah. I think it should be compulsory reading in this country. We don't get these stories enough. You know, we hear about the Burke and Wills, but we don't hear about First Nations Australia and especially First Nations resistance against the coloniser. Yeah, we hear about He was ben extraordinary. Along, but, oh, my God. You know. And this guy was like Rasputin. He couldn't be killed. Like, he's just this amazing <laughs> magic man, really. Like, they tried to kill him many times. I won't give it away. Read the book, but yeah. He's, yeah, read the book. Read the book. Oh, listen to the book. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking about representation of First Nations people, I mean, you're a Bunchalung and Lama Lama woman, mm-hmm. also of mixed heritage. So we'd really like to get your thoughts about where the industry is at now, where we've been and where we need to go. Yeah, I'm doing a little smile to myself as you ask me this, because that's a huge, huge question. I feel like we've got a long way to go. I feel like there's a lot of tokenism at the moment. I feel like in my audiobook work, I have been typecast a little bit as one of the First Nations narrators, but I love that. And I think that's a really good thing, because I think that's what we should be doing, casting people with voices of the ethnicity that they're reading, et cetera, et cetera. But in my acting work, I'm quite white passing. I don't have stereotypical features of anything. And that's actually affected my career. And I feel like I get overlooked a lot. And so do a lot of other actors that don't present typically anyway. And I think at the moment, there's a huge move to be more inclusive on screen. And that's great. We Mm. love that because it's um, the first of its kind, really. This is the first time this has happened. But they're kind of missing the mark. And it's becoming a bit more tokenistic because they're missing out on people that look like me who are of mixed heritage. And they're kind of missing the mark with First Nations people don't always present with black skin. And so I feel like that's where we need to move into next is not just seeing it as um, black or white and making more room for the in between and that black um, First Nations people comes in many shades. Yeah, I remember you telling me once about a role that you played where the casting brief was actually ethnically ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've written a poem about this actually called Ambiguous because I've been called ethnically ambiguous my whole career. Less so now because people are a bit more PC. But at the beginning, yeah, they didn't know where to place me. They didn't know how to cast my parents. Like, oh, does she have a black dad and a white mom? Like they didn't know what to do with me. So yeah, I think that's an inherently racist term to call someone because I'm not ambiguous. I'm Tamala and I have um, lineages that we can point to and talk about and cast. It's not actually that hard. That was kind of earlier in my career and I think we are slowly moving away from that space and slowly moving away from tokenism but yeah much more work has to be done but in the audio space I've been taken care of really well I haven't felt that at all great (laughs) so thank you you were telling us when you came in about the last time we saw each other was you came in to do some voiceover for our sister company Risk Sound where you had to do a very odd character voice (laughs) (laughs) this sounds nothing like me at all that was a First Nations character as well oh really yeah but they wanted so much vocal fry talk about vocal fry Mm. oh my god they're like can you just be like more Aussie can you just like ramp it up like more gritty and I'm like I can't (laughs) and they wanted me to scream a lot wow yeah anyway yeah vocal fry (laughs) (laughs) we shudder to think 
So in relation to typecasting, are there things you actively put yourself forward for that you ask your agent to seek out this kind of thing for me? No, actually. It's an interesting process. I've been with my agent, Catherine Poulton Management, since I was 14, so since kind of the genesis of my career. And she's always taken care of me. She got me into audiobook work. She's like, hey, do you want to try it out? And I was like, why not? It's become such a big part of my life. And I trust her immensely and we share the same views and values and that's really important because she always puts me up for the right stuff and she agrees with me always when I want to say no to something if they've just kind of missed the mark a little bit or they're not being culturally respectful or or sensitive. Yeah, so I actually never put myself up for stuff because she's always putting me up for the right stuff. (laughs) Having an agent like that just is a game changer, particularly when you start as young as you do. And I know Catherine has a lot of younger people on her books. It's kind of one of her specialities. Absolutely. So supportive. And I remember you telling me once how much she nurtured you. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I needed some nurturing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just quickly going back to First Nations stories, I'm gathering that from what you've said that you do feel a heightened sense of responsibility. I'm not saying you feel, you know, blasé about the other stuff, but it's something that you really do not wear lightly. No. Absolutely not. And mm. it feels like a huge responsibility and a huge honour to be trusted with these stories because often they're heavy, you know, or they're historical fictions. Yes. And so there's a lot of truth telling there mm. or they're really personal. So I do not take it lightly. And it feels really different to telling white stories. There's a really different quality to it. There's a consultation process often with language. And also, and this is quite personal, but I'm happy to share it on the podcast, but I have um, throughout my life felt quite disconnected from my culture because I grew up with my white mom and I grew up around a lot of mob, but not my mob because I grew up in um, Melbourne and my mom's Bunjalung and Lama Lama, which is not near here. And so actually, I don't know if you know this, but by doing all these audiobooks and telling all these stories and speaking language, this has been like a huge reclamation piece for me and connecting to my culture. And in reading these stories, I've learned more about my culture than I actually kind of ever have. I think it was in Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko. Yeah, Melissa Lukashenko is from Up Your Way. She's Bunjalung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in that book, I think there were pieces of language, and I remember that being like, that was such a huge moment for me because I don't know any of my own languages. I'm only an English speaker. And so that was so extraordinary. So actually, audiobooks and doing First Nations written audiobooks has had an extraordinary impact on my life and my connection with my culture. Yeah. Well, we hope we'll be having you in for for a long time, (laughs) reading all kinds of things, because I agree that you should be reading lots of things. So that was great when we worked on Whisper and Weapon together, like young adult sci-fi dystopian kind of stuff. It's been completely different from Mm -hmm. other things we've worked on together. Mm. Okay, I would now love to talk to you about Storybox Library. Oh, yeah, okay, Yeah, I know you're passionate about it. There's a big (laughs) smile just there. (laughs) Cool. Do you want to tell people about it? Because I don't know that enough people know about it. And I feel like they should because it's audiobook adjacent and it's an incredible thing. Yeah, so Storybox Library is this company where they get everyone and anyone really, actors, musicians, grandmas, neighbour, to read picture books to kids. But then they have this like separate entity program called Story Tools, which they asked me to come on and be the host of. And that's like this online free accessible program teaching kids to write stories and be authors and illustrators themselves. And so I'm kind of the person that links together all the authors and the illustrators and does the kind of hi kids thing. Which was new for me. That's the first time I've ever done hosting, I think. And you got to wear some rocking outfits. Oh, my God, the (laughs) (laughs) colours. And I think we did three seasons of that now. And for now, I think that's kind of it, as far as I know. But, yeah, it's all online, so if you want access to it, check it out. Yeah, it's the Storybox Library, yeah. Yeah. And I think you can access it through public libraries as well. absolutely. uh, Because my husband is a public librarian. He knew about it. But you're right, they get all kinds of people to read because just last week... 
I was thinking about someone who I've worked with in the past, write a podcast, and I was mm. like, oh, I haven't heard from her for a while. I wonder what she's up to. Googled her, and there she popped up on Storybox Library. So I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. So then I was looking at the list of people, and I was like, I know her. I know him. All kinds of people. Comedians, performers. It's such a great resource. Such a great resource. Yeah, yeah. You know, because all children should be read to, but sometimes the parents just don't have the wherewithal, whether it's a language barrier or a literacy barrier or Mm. educational barrier or Mm. time. Mm-hmm. So to have this thing where children can be read to and mm. it's just a lovely thing. Mm, I agree. Yeah, it's been yeah. such a pleasure to work with them. And they've had me on a lot. I've done a lot of picture books now. And then to do the hosting bit was really cool too. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned a poem you'd written earlier. Oh, yeah. And I know you've done you've done some spoken word yes. stuff on stage. Uh, yeah. yeah. Tell us about <laughs> your writing. Oh, cool. Um, Yeah, I've been writing for a long time, ever since I was a teenager, but now I'm taking it more seriously, post-pandemic actually, (laughs) and trying to have more agency over my career and also just take my creativity into my own hands and explore it in a new way and explore storytelling in a new way. You know, that's how we started this conversation. And so I write a lot of long-form poetry and um, I've been putting it to music and collaborating with a lot of extraordinary musicians. We're in the works of doing an album and I'd love to tour that. Actually, maybe I won't talk about it too much. I don't want to jinx it, but yeah, been doing lots more writing. That's lovely. Thank you. So, to wrap up, what advice do you have for people wanting to get into audiobook narration? I've been asked this, actually. I get asked this a bit. And I say, first off, record yourself a voice reel. That's really important. You can do it yourself or go into a studio and do it. And then get an agent. I highly recommend it. You can freelance it and try and get your own work, but it helps when you have someone helping you out. And I'd say, practice your accents. Practice playing a bit more, you know, just don't jump into it raw like you'd want it to be a part of your life. I speak in different accents all throughout my day. And I don't say that like to be dicky. I really do. I love my accent work. And especially if I'm doing it in a novel and I have to practice. So for instance, if you get your first audiobook, say you get an English accent, you're not familiar with it, I hop on the old YouTube and I just listen or I'll find a movie that has a particular accent and then parrot it back. I'm quite a good parrot. You are a good parrot, yeah. Oh yeah, I haven't talked about my parroting. Yeah, well that's a useful tool for you with pronunciations. If if we're tripped up and we come across a pronunciation, you're very good at parroting it. You know, I find it, I play it to you and you can just do it back to me and a lot of people struggle with that. Right, interesting. You get something that's close but then you say, look, we better check that and it's like, yeah, no, it wasn't close enough. Yeah. And that's part of the preparation process too. I actually don't overwork it. And this is a personal Tamala thing. I'm not going to say this is going to work for everyone, but I actually find that it trips me out more to overwork it because you guys will send it all to me first and I'll listen to it. But actually, if I overwork it in the room, it just, something goes wrong when I'm there. And so for me, it's better to listen to it once, make sure that my mouth can kind of get all the movements and the sounds. But once I'm in the studio, like Justine just said, um, I'm much better parroting. So Justine or whoever it is will play it and then I'll just, we'll just go, right, record. And then I'll just parrot it back really quickly. And it's pretty on point. But if I'm to overwork it, it will be very different. So if you're a parroter, get parroting. If not, get studying. (laughs) (laughs) That was so bossy, wasn't it? (laughs) And for someone coming in for their first book, going into the studio, what's that experience like? How did you feel the first time you were alone in a booth? Yeah, terrified. Do you remember my first book? I was not as good a reader as I Well, no. Well, everyone gets better. I didn't do your first book. I did your second second. book. You were so patient with me. (laughs) Oh, God. Because <laughs> I stumbled on every like second word, and no, I just stop and go not. again. And but I did. We wouldn't have invited you back if we thought you did that. Thank. You. <laughs> 
you know, we do acknowledge that when people are starting out, it's You're going nervous. to... People improve. And yep. and I remember, I think I did your next couple of books as well, yep. that every time you could feel the difference, that you were just relaxing more in the yep. space. Yep. I don't know, had you ever done much voice work before where you're just alone in a booth? Never. At all. It's lonely. <laughs> <laughs> it's freaky. And if you're not used to your own voice, you know how everyone gets really freaked out yeah. by the sound of their own voice? You Always. have to get over that. It mm. takes a couple of books. And I spoke really quickly because that's what you do when you're nervous. Yes. And so you're often just like, let's just slow that down. Yes. By yes. like half. And also I had someone special to me in my life say to me when I was younger, take your time when you're reading a story and telling a story because you want to immerse the listener, right? And if you're just like breezing by it or just following a kind of da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it's boring. People mm. drop out. You want to bring them into the world. And so that's what I took with me in my first books. But yeah, I think a lot of it, like I mentioned before, I mean, do your prep work, do your vocal warm-ups because otherwise you'll just run out. You'll just get you know tired throughout the session. But a lot of it is breath. And you probably talked about this on this podcast a lot, but that's the only thing that gets me through my sessions without my voice running out is just really making sure that I'm breathing from my whole diaphragm. And if I do that and I'm not projecting from my throat, you're going to be fine. That's all you need to know. And if you're breathing properly too, it'll help the nerves because you're concentrating on something. And if you just, you just have to honour the story as well and not make it about you and your ego getting all freaked out, you know, because it's got nothing to do with you. You're here to just be a vessel to honour this story and this author's story. It's so much bigger than you. And that helps me whenever my ego is going, oh, but I sound weird. It's like, well, you know, there's a bigger picture here. Just breathe. The breathing, one of our recent podcast episodes was on anxiety Um, because we realised how many people actually experience performance anxiety and traditionally you couldn't talk about it and we came back to the breath, you know. When you control your breathing, Mm -hmm. then your breathing's not running away from you. It's not triggering all those things in your nervous system that say alert, Mm -hmm. fear, Mm -hmm. just bring it back to the breathing. I think I can safely say I've never met a performer who doesn't get anxiety, but that's why they do it. They have to. They have to prove to themselves that they can transmute that. I think I heard from an actor once when I did my first play and I was terrified and I was saying, I'm terrified. And these really established actors were going, yeah, we all are. And I remember one of them telling me that I think they hooked an actor up on opening night to like to measure all their, uh, yeah, their yeah. heart rate and blood pressure and that kind of thing. Yeah, and wow. apparently it's the exact same as going through a car crash. Oh, my goodness. The intensity of panic that overcomes your body and the adrenaline that pumps through it is on par with a car crash. It's, yeah. And then, of course, that is the paradox, and we said this in the podcast episode about anxiety, is then when you get through and you deliver the high, the buzz. You cannot beat it. You cannot beat it. And that's why we come back. We're addicted. Yeah. (laughs) In a good way, healthy way. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you for sharing these stories with us, Tamala. It's so lovely to look at you and talk to ah, you. We're here in a different setting. I know. We're never together in the same I room. I can see I, you because yeah. usually you're over there. Normally I'm over there and normally <laughs> the only time we're in the same room is when I come in to adjust your microphone and turn down your headphone volume. This is true. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, been a pleasure. You mentioned your wonderful agent, Catherine Poulton, so if anyone wants to hire you, get on the phone to, <laughs> <Get laughs> to on Catherine. Her. But socials? Yes. So I only have Instagram. Thank God I cannot handle having like a TikTok or something. I'm getting old. So my handle is Tamala. And I think there's three Lars on the end, but it's Tamala la la la. Yeah. So Lovely. check me out. I'm not very active, but if you want to find me, I'm there. <laughs> well, maybe we can check out your music stuff when it comes along. Oh, yes, the spoken word stuff. Mm-hmm. 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 That would be great. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And until our next book together. Until our next book. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the audiobook podcast brought to you by Square Sound. If there's something that we haven't covered in our audiobook series that you'd like to know about, send us a message at studio at squaresound.com.au. 
The audiobook podcast was produced by Marianne Plaza with Chetna Chavla, together with Abby Holmes and Justine Sloan-Lees. Sound mix, Michael Zakaria. Special thanks to all our guest speakers. Square Sound is an audiobook and podcast studio in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening.